This is 69 The Podcast. I'm Dave Haynes. 69 has been covering the digital signage industry since the dawn of man, first online and now as a podcast. The goal on here is to make listeners aware of interesting companies, smart people, and new technology developments, all of them meaningful in making digital signage projects happen. I try to help listeners understand sometimes complicated subjects and why they should care. The podcasts are free and I try to get a new one out weekly, but things happen now and then. The 69 Podcast has been gratefully sponsored and supported since the start by Jeremy Gavin and the fine folks at ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. ScreenFeed makes beautiful-looking, totally automated content for signage and digital out-of-home networks. Check them out at ScreenFeed.com. 69 has been around since 2006, and the publication and podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which provides customer engagement solutions for business. You can find them at Spectrio.com. The at-home media company Intersection is probably best known as the operator of that network of smart cities display totems called Link NYC on the sidewalks of Manhattan and New York City's bureaus. But the company has a much bigger footprint around the U.S., mainly mass transport systems, but also the flashy Hudson Yards mixed-use development in New York and United Airlines. I had a good chat with Chris Grosso, who took over as CEO a couple of years ago, but had already been with the company for a few years, having come over from the broadcast and digital world. We got into several things, like the state of the digital out-of-home industry and the evolving needs and demands of the municipal governments who become business partners for Intersection. Smart cities' needs, for example, are shifting. We also get into Intersection's recently announced addition of AI-driven ad and content targeting, with the idea of making what's on screens not just relevant to the city, but all the way down to neighborhoods and streets. Chris, thank you for joining me. Can you give me a rundown on what Intersection's all about? Sure, and thanks so much for having me. I'm very uh, excited to be here, Dave, uh, and uh, very much enjoy reading your publication uh, and the, the newsletter email all the time. Uh, so Chris Grasso, I'm the CEO of Intersection. We are a leading uh, out-of-home advertising company in the United States focused on major uh, U.S. cities. Uh, we really are differentiated from the other out-of-home companies in, in three ways. One is typically uh, we uh, put in uh, consumer amenities uh, in center cities, most notably things like the uh, Link NYC program in New York. Where we put 2,000 uh, Wi-Fi kiosks across the city of New York. Uh, we do customer information and advertising systems for places like Chicago Transit Authority and uh, the SEPTA Transit Authority in Philadelphia. And we, we do bus shelters in, in many U.S. cities as well. So very much uh, driven by uh, bringing consumer amenities in partnership with cities and uh, transit authorities. Second biggest differentiator for us, which is probably most relevant to this conversation, is we're very focused on content and programming. We like to put useful content on our digital screens, uh, and we want to put entertaining content on our digital screens. And that could be anything from what time your train is coming to what the weather might be to uh, art or uh, fun facts. But we want to program these screens just as you'd program any other screen. Uh, in, uh, to make it entertaining and engaging for consumers. And the last piece of our business that we uh, pride ourselves on is, is selling data-driven advertising. We like to be very focused on the uh, data that helps our advertisers understand who they're reaching when they advertise on as well as uh, what happens after they see that. Hmm. Okay. So the idea of consumer amenity, that I, I, I gather that uh, the smart city-ish kiosk that you're, you're, you're putting on the street um, and, and other things like that. That's kind of a more modern version of the amenities, to, to use your term, that uh, outdoor companies have been doing for a whole bunch of time with uh, bus shelters, right? For sure. And we, we're also in the bus shelter business as well. We do some stuff with bike share. 
and and I think it's a it's a long tradition of um, in out of home advertising to bring the amenity uh, to to uh, allow us to get access to the public right of way to put the advertising in, and this is you know very valuable for a city uh, transit authority because they're getting something that they don't have to put up the uh, the cash for. Uh, right. So it's a it's it's a real value creating um, event both for the uh, for the communities as well as the business and the advertiser. Is it kind of the price of entry now for particularly larger uh, urban geographies like a, like a New York and so on, where if, if you want to play, you're going to have to provide infrastructure as well. You can't just put in uh, display totems. You know, I think it really depends on the uh, I think it depends on the municipality and, and the deal structure. Um, you know, in some cases, uh, companies are have to put up the, the capital and bring the amenity and bring the service into the uh, into the community, and that can both be the infrastructure, but increasingly also the software uh, and, and and the services that you can bring. But in, there are also some cases where you know, uh, particularly with the uh, Infrastructure Financing Act, that the city and municipality might want to put up the uh, capital for the infrastructure themselves. In which case, uh, we'll partner with them to create the uh, revenue stream as well as overlay the data and the, the software to really get the most out of the, uh, the infrastructure. Um, hmm. In all cases, I think that's important is being able to, you have these digital screens up, having software to put the right content and the right advertising in the right place at the right time is, is, is a big, uh, is an important uh, part of the equation and a big differentiator for us. Does that happen much where you, you have municipalities that are putting uh, or making a capital investment? It depends on the deal, but uh, yes, and there's a couple of different ways you do that. Sometimes uh, the municipality put up some of the capital themselves. In other cases, um, uh, in many of these deals, uh, we uh, recoup the capital through um, uh, the revenues. So we might, uh, if, if we, we might put up the money and then you know recoup it uh, out of uh, the payments to to the city. Mm-hmm. So there, there's there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do a deal. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can do a deal. Um, there, there are a handful of companies of which we are one that are really uh, good at this and have built a really strong team that knows how to work with cities, work with transit authorities, and create value, you know, both for us but also for the cities. I think you know one big um, differentiator for Intersection is we are a mission-driven company and we are very focused on making uh, cities better uh, through our products. You, you came out of uh, broadcasting online. Uh, which is very much a, a digital entity, and now you're running a company that has to do a lot of in- infrastructure and has to do these sorts of uh, capital-intensive deals. Was that a big adjustment? Um, it's a different business. There's a lot of similarities um, to being in the uh, digital media space and the uh, inter- in uh, the intersection space. But certainly, uh, in the last few years, I've learned a lot more than I ever thought I would about trenching and conduit and pulling fiber <laughs> and uh, a lot of construction. I, I like to say every I was in consulting and then I was uh, in media and, and software. So this is the first job I actually had you know, physical things to deal with. And uh, it, it's, it's an interesting and exciting part of the job. And, and it's a real differentiator for us in the intersection because... You know, we have people who are very good at digital media, but we also have people who are very good at working with cities. And we've got an extraordinary team of folks who really understand how to deploy and operate these things in physical space. And that goes for even the guys who are out, you know, cleaning and posting. Um, you know, we've got a really great team of professionals in, in, in field operations who really understand work 
and physical space. And uh, part of what makes our business both fun, but also gives us a, a leg up is we're good at these different uh, disciplines. You also, I assume, had to learn a lot about politics and about uh, city bylaws. We've got people who very much understand that world for sure. <laughs> which, which is a bit of a labyrinth. One could say that. <laughs> you have to deal with them, so you're being careful. I, I, <laughs> I can understand that. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the, uh, the level of talent, though, in, in these city governments is really uh, impressive. Uh, and, you know, we benefited at Intersection when we, we started. Um, you know, we, we were put together and we had the uh, historic business Titan, which was an out-of-home advertising company, and then uh, Control Group, which was a digital innovation company, we put together to create Intersection in 2016, uh, right before I started. But we had the benefit of um, Dan Doktoroff was our uh, chairman who helped put the deal together and uh, was an alumni of the Bloomberg administration. And we've, you know, benefited from some of, um, you know, folks who uh, come out of that world uh, who really uh, understand that um, and, you know, uh, did, did a great job in government and then can kind of help us understand how to how to do stuff uh, with with the uh, with the government in a way that creates value both for the population and the citizens which and the, the, the people who live in the cities for sure but also you know creates economic value for our business when the whole smart cities thing kind of bubbled up with with link NYC and uh, other initiatives like that there was a lot of noise around it. This seemed to be the way that digital at home was going, that uh, anything that was going into big municipalities was going to have to be a smart city initiative in some way. Has has that really played out? Because I, I don't hear as much and, or read as much noise about all that now. And I know that, you know, we can maybe get into this a little bit of the link on NYC has had its revenue struggles uh, through through the years. I don't know where we're at with that now, but it, it doesn't seem like smart cities has the same kind of energy around it that maybe it did uh, in, in the mid 2010s. I think the definition of what a smart city is has evolved. Mm-hmm. And I think the parts of uh, the smart city uh, that are important, people might not have thought of as smart city, but are, huge trends in the change in the changing nature of cities uh, and, and you really saw that during the pandemic so, so what I mean by that is if you look at the evolution of mobility in a city uh, which wasn't the classic under the rubric of smart cities but you think about how people get around cities now and versus how they did 10 years ago with, the, with bike share with, with ride share with uh, um, changes to how the, the transit authorities are functioning all of that is a very uh, a much smarter way to run a city than, than you know, several several years ago, and, and re- requires data and requires real time information. So I think um, a lot of the, the the ethos around the smart cities just got absorbed in how cities are operating, um, and particularly a lot of that got accelerated in the, uh, during the pandemic. You know, one of the biggest areas of smart cities is what do you do with with parking, and that's outside of our our world. But if you think about uh, the pandemic happened, and it really made people reimagine what you do with uh, street-level parking in cities because, you know, all cities, particularly New York and, and, and others in the United States, all of a sudden put restaurants on, on the street uh, due to the need for uh, giving these restaurants an ability to, to uh, run their business without indoor dining. And that reimagined the whole way people do parking. Um, is that a classic smart city type of initiative? 
I don't know, but it totally reimagined um, how uh, the street works. And I think if, if you walked down the street on the Upper West Side today versus what you saw in 2019, it's a completely different uh, experience with the bike share and the outdoor dining and, and, and other, other things of that nature. Mm-hmm. So are, are there still demands uh, uh, among municipalities to have these uh, smart city kiosks slash totems that uh, are kind of multi-purpose devices that they're at advertising totems. Obviously, there's an interactive thing. Maybe there's mm-hmm. Wi-Fi built in and sensors and so on. Is that still being deployed and asked for? I think I think the form factors are changing, and I think okay. the needs are changing of, of the cities. And I think that there are a lot of fundamentals that cities need. So it may not be a totem, but cities need bus shelters. Um, and and now it's not just a bus shelter; it's a mobility hub. Um, cities need uh, advanced wayfinding to manage this multimodal, um, multimodal transportation system that, that's coming out of the pandemic. Cities have always needed, and I think one of the big underestimates, uh, what we all underestimated going into smart cities, but we realize now is cities need the ability to broadcast content, localized content at street level, um, whether it be what time my train is coming or emergency messaging or just uh, education around when the community board meeting is. That has a ton of value. So I think um, you know the original premise of smart cities is let's take an iPhone and put it at street level. I don't think that's um, turned into the right answer, but I do think there are applications and uh, amenities in the right of way that are required that um, that uh, cities want and are, are ready to uh, are ready to ask and uh, get deployed. And, and I do think you'll continue to see. Uh, the, these kinds of initiatives. It just may not be uh, in the form factor of a, a totem. It may be right. a, uh, you know, it could be a bus shelter because you know what, you can put Wi-Fi in a sm- small cell in a bus shelter. Uh, and by the way, the bus shelter provides shade and that's really important in certain municipalities, shelter uh, from, from the rain. And that's important in many municipalities. Mm-hmm. So I think, I can... you know, we've, we've kind of um, evolved, smart cities has evolved uh, into what are the, what are the real needs of the uh, of the of the people who live in the cities, uh, where before it was, hey, we've got a cool thing. Let us give you this cool. Thing. Right. And even you know, if you look at Link, um, the the core propositions of Link, free Wi-Fi and phone calling, um, for sure, are hugely used and hugely important. Uh, but but what we also recognize is Link as a megaphone to broadcast um, real time information to the city of New York is also hugely valuable. Uh, and something that um, you know the community has been able to leverage uh, effectively. Most recently, uh, we played a big role in the um, We Love New York campaign, uh, where you know if you put uh, content on Link, we can reach I think 90 plus percent of New Yorkers 100 times a month. Uh, that that's a massive uh, a megaphone that can be valuable to advertisers, but it also can be valuable to the the city if there's a uh, you know. Schools get shut down for a snowstorm. You can flip the switch mm-hmm. and tell everyone the schools are shut down by the snowstorm. That's a big value for, for a city. Is that classic 2015 smart cities thing? I don't know, but it's a huge value if you're, uh, if you're a parent figuring out right. whether your kid's going to go to school or not the next day. So where is Link at? For over a decade, ScreenFeed has been the reliable choice for beautifully designed, licensed content such as news and weather. We handle over 27 million requests a day to deliver dynamic content to 200,000 screens across the globe. Now we bring you ScreenFeed Connect, 
a no-code solution that makes complex content projects easy. Projects that used to take our designers and developers weeks became a to-do we could complete before lunch. The easy-to-use browser-based tool leverages pre-built data connections and ready-made widgets to give you the power to design with data. Create team member profiles, schedules, tenant directories, progress boards, featured products, or anything that leverages your data. Discover how Connect empowers you to complete projects faster at screenfeed.com. The rollout and viability, I mean, there's been a number of stories through the years about uh, revenue challenges and pace of rollout and so on, but I haven't really seen anything for a, a year or more, so I'm kind of curious where it's at. And as you were saying, is it, 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 it has its value, uh, p- people like it and everything else, but is, is it still the, the, the way forward? Like, would you continue to deploy this? Yes. So uh, during the pandemic, working with our uh, partners, uh, Zenfi, um, we actually have a new uh, form factor uh, for a, a next generation link, which we call Link 5G, which has a lot of the uh, original features of Link, like the free Wi-Fi uh, and the uh, tablet to make phone calls. But it's, it's taller and it allows for um, multi-tenant um, smart cell, uh, sorry, multi-tenant small cells uh, to allow uh, support New York City's 5G rollout. Uh, and, and we have started deploying, uh, or in the process of working through deploying those, uh, those now with our partners, uh, Zenfi, who uh, run fiber and telecommunications. So this, this, this is a nice little partnership for you because they'd, they'd be able to share the infrastructure cost, I assume. Exactly. And, and also they have the expertise in telecommunications. We're in the media content advertising space. We really understand media content advertising software, but, uh, we're not a telecom company. Zenfi is a uh, world-class telecom company. They understand fiber and they understand dealing with carriers and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it is a good part, partnership. Uh, they've been great partners for us. You, you, uh, your company recently announced, and you, you've been talking about uh, localized content, that you're doing uh, localization of content using AI. Uh, it, it strikes me as great that this this is something that absolutely should be done but it was also very reminiscent of uh stuff that was done you know as as much as 20 years ago when they they would call it hyper local Mm -hmm. Uh, but hyper local was very difficult to achieve and very difficult to plan at that time and it it was it, it seemed more like an aspiration than uh something that was possible to do in in a way without a whole bunch of work. I, I assume that's changed hugely because of databases, APIs, and also AI? Yes. Yeah. So so we've always done localization. Uh, and, and given uh, our screens are often deep in neighborhoods, it's a very effective way of, of, of doing stuff. Um, we've always done it, though, with through structured databases, right? So uh, weather. Give me weather at a zip code. Uh, right. Transit. Give me what's going on at the closest train station when the trains are coming. Uh, top 10 lists of the best songs in this neighborhood. But it's all very much tied around structured data. And we right. Do that Metadata and rules, right? Data and rules engine and APIs. And, and we're very good at that. We have a whole suite of, uh, of uh, we call them dynamic advertising products. We've got great product, for instance, that if you're a retailer, 
uh, you put the ad up for the retail and then a uh, maps at the bottom to tell you how to get to the closest retail location. And that's highly localized, but it's all based on structured data. The big difference now, what, what AI allows you to do is to do things with much more unstructured data and, and much more around visual creative, which we're very excited about to test and, and, and rolling out. Um, so for instance, if uh, you have an ad for an alcohol brand, how do you put that alcohol brand in context for a neighborhood? Maybe you show what's the relevant drink for this block. Uh, and, and the AI can figure out, hey, this is the block that Edgar Allan Poe lived on, so it'll be Edgar Allan Poe's drink. You know, trying to do that manually would be impossible, mm -hmm. but you can, do, uh, you can do that using these uh, AI engines. And then on the visual side as well, which is very uh, exciting, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a mascot uh, or character of a, uh, of a brand, and let's actually put that uh, brand in context in the neighborhood and uh, dressed up as someone from the neighborhood. Uh, you, can, uh, you can do that kind of thing with these AI engines uh, that if you try to do this with uh, trying to do this yourself, you never could, you may not A, figure out the creative idea and B, could never have uh, the army of people who would take to, to, to build all that creative out. So that's why we're very excited uh, around using these tools uh, to do localization for around unstructured data and uh, yeah, more creative uh, types of ideas than the classic hey, here's the top 10 songs being played on this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It expands a lot of possibilities, but how do you do the gatekeeping on it? Uh, because as many people have described, AI can sometimes have these quote-unquote hallucinations and come up with uh, you know, a, a strange list that maybe isn't the top 10 songs in, in that neighborhood. Yeah, for sure. So you know, one, one way you do it is control the prompts and make sure you're being smart about how you're doing the prompting. The second is you might, you know, we still would envision having a layer of, of uh, human taking a look at all the creative before it goes on the screen to sort of catch stuff that just doesn't mm -hmm. make sense um, over time. And you know, over time, that probably goes away, but you still want some level of quality control. But it's very different to have a creative, uh, you know, creative designer take a look at 100 pictures over the course of an hour and just check everything to make sure it looks good. As mm -hmm. opposed to um, you know trying to literally create all those mocks, right? It's a right. huge difference, and and so I think I think yeah, you know at least to start we're, we're going to have some level of uh, you know human quality control on this for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I think uh, the still the, the the ability to use these tools to be able to do things you never could do before because you just didn't have the army of people. It would not it would be cost prohibitive to do the work. Is really what we're what we're. Doing. In the old days, my, my understanding of digital out of home is, uh, you know, a media planner would develop the plan and the media company would execute based on the insertion orders or, or that plan. When, when you're getting into hyper-local AI-driven uh, targeting and original content per, by the street, who's doing that plan? I think it's in partnership often with the advertiser or the agency, right? Mm -hmm. So um, there may be cases where the, the agency has a really good idea of what they want to do. There may be cases where the agency says, hey, help us think this through. Um, and we've always um, provided creative services to our, our clients whenever they needed it. So this is not far afield um, from what we do already. When I mentioned some of these dynamic advertising, oftentimes we build them on behalf of uh, advertisers in our agencies as part of our our partnership, so we, we'd envision mm. this in the same way. With programmatic uh, 
I, I gather that programmatic is on the rise. The uh, the usage level is up. Like I, the last number I saw was like fifteen percent of digital at home ads are now booked out of uh, programmatic platforms. Is, is there a bridge between programmatic and this AI-driven hyper-local stuff, or do they kind of have to operate independently because it's just the way it works? I think to start, you've got to build out these uh, campaigns, and, and these campaigns will be you know more high-touch than your classic programmatic campaigns. Mm-hmm. So I think to start, these really have to be direct sold because a lot of this is around the creative idea and the creative concept, and there needs to be back and forth with client to really get this right, um, as opposed to programmatic, which is really about um, scale and, 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 and tonnage and, and efficiency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know, we, we spend a lot of time on, on programmatic as, as well, for sure. Uh, you know, we, we uh, launched a Place Exchange, uh, which is uh, an out-of-home SSP, and we actually spun that business out because they did a lot of work with us, but they were doing work with all the other publishers, too, so it made sense to be an independent company. Um, but, but, you know, we, we have very deep integrations with, with place exchange and several other SSPs. So we're very, um, get focused on, on programmatic, uh, and, and do view it as a growth driver. But I do think the, the, uh, creative side, uh, is, is gotta be much more channel. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I really think long-term, um, the way the business goes is you'll see a, um, yeah, I used to work for Tim Armstrong at AOL. I used to call it the concept of the barbell. And I think you're going to see, you know, continued growth in programmatic. And then the direct sale is really going to be about driving solutions for, um, for advertisers um, that are highly strategic and, and, and deep partnerships with advertisers. And it could be something like the AI program. It could be like other things we do, for instance, where we have advertisers um, sponsor train stations or whole train lines for multi-year deals where we work together to, uh, to, to rename uh, a station or a train line. So, you know, in, in New York City, the uh, Bed MGM uh, renames the line that goes out to the Meadowlands, mm-hmm. um, and, and and we do we do this in several places, other places as well. So, I do think you're going to see the direct sale be much more solution driven, uh, and, and and working very tightly with the advertisers and, and the agencies to build these really cool things, whether it be AI or long term sponsorships or, or big programs. And then on the, on the flip side, you'll see the program. The programmatic business continue to scale as well. Has the characteristics of venues and the type of venue partners evolved over the years? Like uh, Titan, the, the old Titan was about transit and street furniture, uh, but you, you have other companies that are very active in like airports and uh, mm-hmm. other mass transport hubs. Is that evolving for you as well, or are you very much about uh, kind of street level advertising? We're about cities, uh, and, and the the key thing in cities, street level advertising uh, in cities is really uh, really important for us and a big area of focus. Uh, transit, you know, remains a big area of focus as well. Uh, and then, um, you know, we've done a little bit in airports uh, and airlines. Uh, we've also done work with some of the next generation multi-use developments like Hudson Yards, where we put in. Uh, the wayfinding directory system and the advertising system, and that's a great uh, business for us. But uh, you know, we, we also uh, our, our biggest our, our criteria for whether or not we want to partner with someone really comes down to um, being able to do something uh, value creating in in big uh, big cities, uh, you know, top twenty five cities in the U.S. That that's what we're good at. That's how we're 
were differentiated. And sure, the, you know, the, the types of partners that we work with uh, will continue to evolve just as the audiences are evolving. Uh, you know, if you think about the transit business, um, the transit business includes uh, street furniture, it includes signs outside train stations, it includes buses, uh, and it includes the, the train stations themselves. And I think during the pandemic, what we found is the vast majority of our revenue uh, and, and where all the growth was is on, you know, the outside of the train station, the outside of the buses, uh, everything that's at street level. Uh, and that offset the fact that, you know, the, the, the train stations themselves have less people, but there's still tons of people outside the train stations. And that's where we put a lot of our, uh, our emphasis on, on the ad side. Has the business recovered from the, the COVID era? Yes. Yes. Um, it looks different um, given our mix of revenue. But we're largely back uh, to pre-COVID, uh, pre-COVID revenue levels. Uh, the the bus exterior business and the street furniture business is well above, and the uh, train station business uh, part of the business is still somewhat below because the you know the ridership is just. And then you know we're continuing to look at new um, new types of uh, inventory, whether it be uh, you know, multi-use destinations, as I said, like Hudson Yards, uh, airlines. New forms of uh, street furniture, for instance, we've got a great ad campaign on the uh, bike share. In, in Do you have to look at um, municipal opportunities differently now uh, because of uh, the way COVID changed things and the, the, the urban downtown areas not being as heavily populated with office workers as they were in the past? You know, it's different in a New York or something, but let's say in a Cincinnati or a Minneapolis or something where not as many people are coming into the urban area. Yeah, you know, um, we do the exact same methodology when we assess the deals that we look at, which always starts with where the audience is. And we've got you know folks who are really good at looking at GIS and traffic patterns and people patterns to kind of understand the scale of the audience on all the different assets we might either deploy or take over the ad sales for. That mechanism. We do exactly the same mechanism that we did in 2018, 2019, we do today. Mm -hmm. uh, what comes out of those models is a little bit different for sure. Uh, but what's great about a lot of our, um, our business is we typically cover the entire city, not just the central business district. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and a good example of this would be in New York, the Link NYC. If you look at the impressions, both uh, ad impressions generated by the Link NYC network before and after the pandemic, on a network level, they're pretty close. However, the links in Midtown Manhattan, where people are going to work three days a week, are lower. However, the links on, say, the Upper West Side or in Brooklyn are actually higher because of things like outdoor dining and people working from home. So mm -hmm. the people are all there. They just moved around different places. And, and so the methodology we use, which is understanding you know, where the audience is, uh, works fine. We look at everything the same way, but what comes out of those models is, is uh, different uh, based on how the speeds have evolved. I, I talk a lot to people in Europe and they have asked me where are things at in terms of what they call green signage and is uh, are, are there North American digital signage and digital out home network operators uh, concerned about and doing something about uh, energy costs? Is it something that comes up with you or is, is it something you're trying to address? We are definitely looking at sustainability. 
you know, to the extent we, it's part of our assessment for uh, screens on how much power they use. Uh, and then in many, uh, you know, we are also looking at how do you make these networks more sustainable. So uh, ways you do that. So for instance, one is you know, we do static bus shelters, but they still need backlight and we will use solar panels on those shelters, which mm -hmm. has the benefit of both being uh, more green friendly, but also just cheaper uh, because you don't have to pull power to the shelters. Uh, with regards to um, uh, digital uh, signs uh, like, like Link NYC, uh, we've looked for opportunities to source the electricity from green sources. Uh, and, and that's been something we've done successfully. But then also we look at our footprint on how we take care of the uh, take care of our infrastructure. Uh, so we've started to test, for instance, electric vehicles. Uh, in one of our markets, uh, all the uh, trucks that we use are, are electric right now. Uh, running that as a pilot, it's gone very well. The guys love the uh, love the, the EV trucks uh, to the point where we had a couple EVs and a couple gas, and the guys were just fighting over who got to use the EVs. So instead of being a half a uh, half half EV half gas pilot, we put everything on EVs in that market because everyone was fighting over to get to drive. Are you being banged on at all by municipal authorities or by public interest groups to saying, you know, you need, you need to do something to reduce energy waste. These, these displays on the sidewalk are not mission critical, just like in, in Europe where they were saying you need to turn these off for uh, certain periods of time. They don't need to be running 24 seven anymore. Is, is, is that something you have to worry about? Or are you hearing about? I think um, I think municipalities want you to be sustainable, but uh, I think we would argue our, our signs are mission critical and should be up twenty four seven. No no one's asked us to do anything um, otherwise. Uh, but if you think about the importance of real time information, if if you're looking uh, when my bus is coming or the weather and the sign's not on, that's a problem. Mm, yeah. Um, so so you know we like to think and we we would insist all of our signs are actually pretty mission critical. Now, that being said, there are things you can do around how, how much power you use and dim the signs at night and that kind of thing to, to, to reduce the uh, energy load and, and optimize that. And everyone's intended to do that. And then, again, you know, to the extent we can source power from green sources, we, we will do that as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, last question, what should we see or what, what can we expect to see out of Intersection in the next year? You, you made that announcement recently about generative AI. Uh, what's next? So I think uh, we're very focused on product innovation um, around serving, meeting our customers on the, the needs that they want. So I think you're going to continue to see more um, innovation around ad formats. Uh, you're also going to start to uh, continue to see more innovation around measurement and attribution and our ability to um, help people, uh, help advertisers understand who's seeing their ads and what they do after their ads. And that's going to be, that's a huge focus for us in the big area of investment. I think a lot about there and then look we're always looking at new partnerships and new deployments and um, we've got some stuff uh, cooking right now that we're hoping to be able to talk about uh, towards the back half of the year uh, as part of our continued uh, expansion all right uh, Chris thank you very much for spending some time with me thank you Dave I do appreciate it that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe you learned a thing or two. If you're new to 169, it's a podcast that's been around since 2016. You can click around the archive and find hundreds of conversations with smart industry people. If you're new to digital signage, you need to be reading 169 at 16-9.net. You'll find more than 8,000 posts by me and expert guest writers about this industry. 
16.9 is not a press release republishing mill, like a lot of this stuff out there. If something makes it on 16.9, that means it matters in some way to the business. Everything about 16.9 is free. Great sponsors make my work possible, and the key one here is ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. Check out all the curated and automated content available at ScreenFeed.com. 16.9, the blog, and the podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which does customer engagement solutions, most of that digital signage, for all kinds of businesses. You'll find them in the Tampa area and online at Spectrio. That's Spectrio.com. You'll find me working out of a sunny back room in my house, located outside Halifax, Nova Scotia, on the east coast of Canada. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Haynes.